Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio in KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva. Welcome. I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, The Intersection of Disability, Justice, and Climate, I will be interviewing Juliet Romeo, disability advocate and founder of Media Jewels Production and Slam Dance Unstoppable, and Taylor Miller, festival manager of Slam Dance Unstoppable and Slam Dance Miami. Juliet Romeo is an award-winning documentarian and disability advocate. She is also the founder of the Unstoppable Program for Disability and Diversity Inclusion in Films. Her most recent documentary, Art of Warriors, about how the COVID-19 affects the sickle cell community, premiered on PBS. Taylor Miller is an award-winning documentary photographer and filmmaker. She studied for her PhD in communications at the European Graduate School. She is a co-founder and manager of Slam Dance Unstoppable and Slam Dance Miami. Miller spent 2.5 years as the director of photography with Harbor Heights Entertainment filming a docu-series on the city of Detroit. Her work in the series led to an invitation to speak at Google about This is Detroit, which will be released in 2021. According to the World Bank, 15% of the world population is disabled, which is nearly 1 billion people. During times of crisis, such as climate change, intensified storms, droughts and fire, or conflict-driven migration issues, those with disabilities can lack accessibility and have some of the greatest challenges to evacuation, adaptation, and financial and structural needs. Many times, the needs of non-disabled people are prioritized, leaving the disabled community the last to be considered. Long before factoring in the challenges of climate change adaptation, there exists a heightened vulnerability for disabled people, in particular among communities of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. In environmental and social justice movements, when advocacy and solutions do not consider the needs of the disabled community or those with disabilities are not invited to be at the table, those are not inclusive or just solutions. Our guests today are both filmmakers who have helped create the Slam Dance Unstoppable Film Festival, which promotes disability and diversity inclusion in film. Thank you for tuning into The Intersection of Disability, Justice, and Climate. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guests, Juliet Romeo, disability advocate and founder of Media Jewels Production and Slam Dance Unstoppable, and Taylor Miller, festival manager of Slam Dance Unstoppable and Slam Dance Miami. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Hi. Well, welcome both of you to the show. You're both co-founders of Slam Dance Unstoppable. And before we get into the film festival and its importance, today we're discussing disability, accessibility, and the connection to environment and social justice activism. So I first, I think it might be helpful to build a foundation for our audience to understand the topic. Juliet, what is meant by someone having a disability? That is a really tough question, but a disability is a 
visible or non-visible, sometimes medical ailment that may make things a little more difficult based on social and society norms of how things are for these people in the community to be able to progress. That is my opinion. <laughs> but um, having a disability for me, my, my disability is, is non-visible. Um, I have sickle cell. And I think for a while, I didn't even know that I was disabled. I think that it was just a, I don't know if it was because of the, for it not being visible, but I didn't even realize that, that I could be considered that. I just kind of always try to catch up with everything else in life. Whereas I may see someone that's in a wheelchair and you, you kind of know there's access that was there. And I mean, it hasn't always been there. It's only been 31 years since the Americas with Disability Act has been put in place. So the disabled community has been ignored for a very long time. And Taylor, I'm, I want you to expand too on this the, the words visible and non-visible when it comes to disabilities. And I, I can imagine that people can assume what that means. What's been your experience? And can you elaborate on that and why it's important to recognize both? Thank you, Jessica. And thank you again for this opportunity. Uh, Julia, I've been very excited to have this opportunity to discuss with you. And SoCal 350, Eco Justice Radio is a incredibly important. And I just wanted to to thank you again for this opportunity. I think that when any of us try to discuss something as huge as visible and non-visible disabilities, we find ourselves at a crossroads of always already wondering if we're saying the right thing. And that is something that comes with the territory, so to speak. And what I mean by that is When I was a child, I remember being in school and there was a boy who had, he'd gotten very sick over the summer. And one of the teachers had said to one of the parents, well, he doesn't look sick. And that always stayed with me, this concept of, it's this phrase, it's a very complicated phrase, but it has kind of seeped into a type of normalcy that Steve Way, as Juliet can attest to, Steve Way, who's one of the other co-founders of Slam Dance Unstoppable, said, quite frankly, when we were talking about panels for the festival, he said, let's not say you don't look sick. Let's say you don't look disabled. You know, let's, let's push it. Let's say what it is. Steve Way is just, he's, he's phenomenal in, in every way. And we've had a lot of discussions, right, Juliet, about the non-visible. Of course, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got yeah. a lot of the, you don't look disabled. And like I was saying before, Jessica, maybe that's why I didn't even know. Because on days that I didn't feel well, it was like, well, you look fine. You, you were fine a minute ago. So I'm just pretending or I'm faking it. It was very hard to wrap my head around that identity when it was always constantly being taken away from me. So I just kind of like tried to roll with the punches, which is a health issue in itself because I should be pacing myself, but I'm pushing myself to try to catch up with everyone else as opposed to just acknowledging my abilities and being able to do the best in the space that I have instead of trying to do 
better in a space that I shouldn't be in, that I'm trying to, you know, like climb this ladder <laughs> where everyone else has, you know, like I have this short ladder and trying to get to the same apple in the tree that everyone else has, you know, everyone's tall and I'm not, it makes no sense. And everyone's telling me, I mean, you're fine. You can do it. I don't know what's the problem. So that was really a really hard thing for me to finally realize. And once I kind of really just accepted it, should I tell her the oxygen story? Like it just made me laugh because I thought about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> yeah. you should. I think, you should. yeah. I, I think a lot of people actually don't understand what sickle cell is and that you, you do, are on oxygen and. Okay. Um, sickle cell disease is a, a hereditary blood disorder. One in 13 African-Americans have the sickle cell trait and it's considered a rare disease when in actuality it is the most common inherited blood disease in the world. Basically, your cells, your blood cells, uh, what holds, you, you know, creates your oxygen. It's, for me, it's shaped kind of like a crescent moon. And they get kind of spiky and sticky and they stick together. And then going through your, my, my blood, through my veins, it'll get kind of trapped in the joints because they're so sticky and they clump together, which blocks blood flow causes swelling, causes immense pain, and also lack of oxygen because my blood cell doesn't have the protein that it needs to. It's missing that protein DNA that creates oxygen. So I didn't always have to wear oxygen 24-7. But once I, and I had this idea in my set, again, like old people wear oxygen and walk around with these little, you know, oxygen things. You don't need to do that. And I just always felt like people are looking at me. So my first documentary, it gets a lot of great reviews. It's on PBS. And I was very proud to like share that story and share my, you know, like what is sickle cell and, you know, just give it all this awareness. And I get accepted into this film festival in San Francisco. They held it at Google, which was awesome, right? So I'm at Google. I'm so excited. And we're in this big room in Google and they have like some people speaking on a panel and I'm sitting in the front. I'm so important because, they, you know, they they just showed my film and I'm wearing the oxygen and it's making this weird, like, little, like... The clicking, right? Clicking sound, right? Right, right, right. right. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm sure people can hear this. I'm just going to turn it off and take it off because I don't want to disturb anyone. And I take it off and I could literally feel my oxygen dropping. And I like check oh, no. my oxygen. I have that carry on. I carry on a little like oximeter. So I put it on and I'm checking the oxygen and it's just ticking down to like, you know, 40, 44. I'm like, are you literally trying to pass out and kill yourself to not disturb <laughs> the entire audience? Right, right. About yeah. the disease that you, and your, your, your film is about the thing. Yes. Oxygen for. Right. So what's so what's so amazing kind of about that, right, is that so you, this film is literally about that. And then in the showing of the film in reality, right, in that space, you once again are experiencing the very thing itself yeah, again yeah, and like again. That. And it and becomes so it part of your. It was too real for me. It was a lot. Yeah. And it becomes sort of this this thing that we've talked a lot about, which is the disease to please, right? Also that, mm-hmm. that kind of comes in and trying to accommodate the silent and non-visible diseases and 
how even on our, you know, when, when you and, and Jason De Silva had, had spoken during your panel uh, a few months ago, you know, we had the great opportunity to, to speak with him before that. And some of the things that we talked about are just so simple and so overlooked and never mentioned, right? How to make a documentary when you have a disease, mm-hmm. how to tell a story a the way that yeah. when you have a disability, you know, and, and I think there's also a connection there too, right? With what we've discussed with the silent and the non-visible and that intersectionality of also the climate crisis, right? And how quickly it went from climate change to mm-hmm. the change is the crisis. You know, we're, we're, mm-hmm. in, we're, in, we're in crisis, right? And so mm-hmm. that word is something, Juliet, that we've talked a lot about in terms of your journey, because you have, you know, severe moments of, of crisis with your disability. That's what they call our flare-ups or it's a crisis. You're having a sickle cell crisis. And so, yeah, that word is um, like very prevalent for us. And I think I never really thought about, well, why do they call it that? But it, it has a lot to do like how our body reacts has a lot to do with extreme heat, extreme cold elevation, things like that. You know, um, even before I started wearing oxygen, if I took a flight and I was too high up in altitude for too long, you know, that could, that would affect me. You know, I would end up being sick. I know this one guy, he, I think it might've been his 30th birthday. He decided he was going to fly to Vegas and have a great time and, you know, spend the weekend and come back. He came back like right off the plane. He literally did like a, a live saying, Hey guys, I'm coming home, but I'm really not feeling good. I might've party too hard. And he died in the airport. From like just to the altitude and the crisis it was creating in his body was too much. I'm quite sure it had a lot to do with him like drinking that day, you know, drinking that weekend. Because remember, alcohol also absorbs all of the hydration in your body, which is another thing that can really affect us if we're dehydrated. It was just a a recipe of disaster that was going to happen, you know. And it's a good and. A good analogy there. I want to come back to the the climate change topic here in a moment. And like you just said, it's a, it's a great analogy between, you know, lack of oxygen, lack of hydration and what mm-hmm. we're going on in our environment as well. But before we do that, I want to just talk about the film festival a little bit because we are we're talking about this film, these films. You both are filmmakers. <laughs> we're talking about people who you're involved with. <laughs> Taylor, you are the festival manager of Slam Dance Unstoppable and Slam Dance Miami. Can you tell us, for those that may not know, what is Slam Dance? Yeah, sure. I think thanks, Jessica. Slam Dance is a film festival that started in the '90s, and you know, I, I like to say that that Slam Dance uh, was created through the entropy of rejection. <laughs> um, and and what I mean by that is Slam Dance is a way of telling stories of creating stories of, of sharing your life. You know, uh, it, 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 it goes beyond, it goes beyond the film festival. And there were a group of filmmakers in the nineties and they, they'd submitted all you know their films to Sundance and amazing filmmakers and all of their films got rejected. And they uh, said, okay, I still want to show this film. And one of the other filmmakers said, I do too. How do we do that? And basically, slam dance was built from this, from a need to tell the stories, even if 
they didn't get into a specific festival, right? To continue doing everything that can be done to find the stories that aren't being spoken about and to find the filmmakers who have voices that we can provide a platform for so that bigger audiences can see their films. And now there is the an offshoot called Unstoppable Film Festival, uh, which is part of Slam Dance, and that specifically promotes disability and diversity inclusion in film. Can you speak to that, Taylor, briefly, and you know how that's maybe inspired other companies like Hulu and YouTube to take sure, part and you know, create abil- yeah. uh, opportunities? Yeah, and, and I mean, I'll say I'll say a couple things, but you know, I mean, one of the big reasons, right, that Juliet Romeo is on here is not only because she's an incredible documentary filmmaker and uh, and true visionary. You know how I feel about you, and but look, Slam Dance Unstoppable. We had our first year this past February, and it was all online because the entire festival was online due to the pandemic. And what was really important about that is that it pushed everything to accessibility, right? There wasn't a binary, right? It wasn't, you can either travel far and be a part of the festival or you can't. And that's what it is, right? We we all had a common ground there. And so with our inaugural, you know, year of, uh, of Slam Dance Unstoppable, it was, you know, it's co-founded, by five programmers, right? Steve Way, obviously, you know, that Julia Romeo goes without saying, uh, Asha Chai Chang, Chris Furby, and Gabriel Cordell. And two of those, uh, two of those filmmakers are Slam Dance alumni, which is amazing. And it is a program within Slam Dance that is for disabled filmmakers by disabled filmmakers. And it's visible and non-visible disabilities. And I would say, Juliet, one of the major points is that a director or a writer, someone on the team has to currently live with a visible or non-visible disability. And if there is someone, uh, if there's an able-bodied person portraying a disabled person in a short film or feature, that is actually automatically disqualified as part of the guidelines for Slam Dance Unstoppable. Um, so I'm going to turn it over now to Juliet. Yeah, she'll, she'll, she'll tell more of the story. Well, let's hold that thought for one second. We're going to go to a quick break, and then we're okay. going to bring that back. And Juliet, I definitely want you to tell your story about how Slam Dance Unstoppable came about. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you are enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps. Visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to The Intersection of Disability, Justice, and Climate with host Jessica Aldridge, myself, and our guest, Juliet Romeo, disability advocate and founder of Media Jewels Production and Slam Dance Unstoppable, and Taylor Miller, festival manager of Slam Dance Unstoppable and Slam Dance Miami. Julia, you were a major influence, co-founder of the creation and development of Slam Dance Unstoppable Film Festival. Can you share with us your experience that you had as a filmmaker that just made you go, you know, something has to be done about this. And, and then also, 
you know, what are the barriers to entry that filmmakers have when they when they also have a, a disability? So many. Well, my experience was I went to my first film festival in like 2015. I was very excited, flew to New York. And everything that could have went wrong, went wrong. My oxygen stopped working. So I couldn't like travel with it. I could only like plug it in and keep it like in the hotel room. And so I'm like, okay, I I can do this. Like I can run to these, you know, screenings and then come back and just, you know, oh, sat all day, right? Which I was doing. But on the very last day, it's like my body just was like, enough is enough. I went into a complete pain crisis and had to be admitted into the hospital, missed my flight. But I still was like, we're going to do this again next year. This was amazing. I already started shooting some of the footage at that time that you know landed in my first documentary. And so I just really had all of this creative flow and I couldn't wait to continue, right? And although I had gotten sick, I was like, this is exactly what we need to be talking about. What I thought was a blessing, it was it was a blessing, but I thought, oh, this is good because that same festival moved to Miami where I live, right? So I'm like, oh, now I don't have to fly, so it's going to be better. It was not better. There was a lot of walking. There was extreme heat. Like I had mentioned before, all this heat can also cause, you know, a pain crisis and swelling and things like that that were causing a lot of problems. So it just was happening year after year. And I kept trying to like, get the attention of the founder to say like, hey guys, this is something you guys really need to like look at. There are a lot, I started meeting a lot of other people that have disabilities because by like the second or third time I was going to this festival, my film had already screened on PBS. So people, you know, knew about it. Then it, then they picked it up and wanted to screen it, do a special screening at the festival. So I was totally excited about this. They were like, listen, we want to see what you can do. Let's, you know, write a proposal. So I did a proposal and then COVID happened. Uh, Right before COVID happened, I went to Park City to go to, to experience Sundance and Slamdance. And I absolutely hated it. Like I had friends calling me like, oh my gosh, you went to, you went to Park City. How was it? Was it everything you dreamed? And I hated it like just destroying other filmmakers and going, I did not like this, but this is just me guys. You guys go ahead. Cause you don't have the issues that I have, but I feel like Park City is where people go to become disabled, honestly, because everyone <laughs> is affected by this high altitude. Like yeah. who can live here? I don't, aliens must live there. You do not need oxygen. And if you don't need oxygen, you can't be human. Like, I don't know how people are breathing there. I don't. Um, <laughs> I had someone want to buy my oxygen off of me. Like they couldn't breathe and there was nothing physically wrong with them. So I was like, this is, this is really hard. And at that time, that year, there was actually a screening of an, of some amazing film that was about a team. What, what was the name of that film? Crip, I think it was Crip Camp. Crip Camp. Yeah. So yeah. here we are with this amazing film about this, a disabled, a disabled team or something like that in wheelchairs. And they didn't have accessibility to get into some of these screenings. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, 
so now, you know, we fast forward a couple of months and we're in the middle of a, a, a pandemic. And I got the opportunity to meet Peter Baxter, one of the co-founders of Slam Dance. And I asked him a question. I said, you know, what does disability and diversity inclusion look like at the film festival? And he was, it really bothered him that he had to answer, there is none. And he was like, there's, I really want to do something about that. And I was like, so guys, I already have this amazing idea and this proposal that I'd written. I'd love to shoot it over to you. And I sent it over with some other short films that I just kind of like scoured the internet to find some amazing short films that exemplified what I wanted to see in a, in a program. And he loved it, introduced me to Taylor and we've been buddies ever since. And, um, yeah, so, and now this is where we are. And this history, as they say. That's great. <laughs> Juliet, you keep mentioning this documentary that was on PBS. Uh, it's called The Art of Warriors, correct? And it's... Uh, it's that was my, that's my second one, my first that's one. That's your second two. one. Yeah. And Art of Warriors, though, highlights the impact that COVID-19 had on the sickle cell community, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Can, can you briefly describe, you know, some of those impacts? And then also, is the, is the health system... The thing that's meant to, to, to protect us, is it protecting us and, and those that are those that have disabilities? Absolutely not right now. COVID is the health system's main priority right now. And rightfully so. We we understand that. But there are a lot of serious health conditions that need to be taken care of. There's still heart disease out there, um, sickle cell treatments, cancer treatments. And we're being pushed out of the hospital and spaces that we need for treatment, either because there are no more beds or there, it's just not safe for us to be in that environment. And so that is just so difficult and scary. I know for me and for a lot of other patients I've spoken to, it has caused a lot of not just physical, but mental anxiety, uh, mental health issues as well to have to really stay home and be worried that I can't go to the hospital because if I go to the hospital, I might get COVID. But if I stay home and deal with this pain, you know, what is that also doing too? I was just thinking, Juliet, of Rachel Handler and Katriana Stevens' short documentary, How Much Am I Worth? Mm-hmm. Which was part of our lineup for Slam Dance Unstoppable online during the festival, but, you know, it's actually going to be September 24th to 26th. How much am I worth? will be playing out in Joshua tree as part of, you know, the, the slam dance Joshua tree weekend. That they're and having. It's, but it's exactly what you're, what you're talking yeah. about, right? It's, it's the dialogue. Very yeah. Yeah. Because there's still this, and to think that there was this question before, COVID, how much am I worth as a patient to the health system and, and, and insurance and things like that? And now we're talking about it. We're asking the same question, but now all these things all of a sudden are not important. I literally had to like wait two weeks for a very important monthly blood procedure that I get because there, there's a shortage on blood simply because they're giving all of the blood to the COVID patients. Sometimes for me, that can be very frustrating because it's a lot of people that just don't want to 
stay safe or get the vaccine or wear a mask. And it's like, and now you're in the hospital taking up my blood. Like, this is how I feel. I mean, I said it, I'm not taking it back. You know, like I just, (laughs) so we are doing a lot of blood drives, you know, it's September and it's sickle cell awareness month. So there are a lot of blood drives happening right now. And that's uh, one of the ways that we try to bring awareness and, and get people to come out and help. And so there's just so much more that's happening also with the medical world and the way we are being treated, uh, you know, systemic racism in the healthcare system is just ridiculous. And it definitely needs to see some changes. We get a lot of the flack as being considered a black disease. And so it's, you're not really in pain. You're seeking drugs and things like that. And it's, it's just a lot to automatically be looked at and deemed as problematic when you're coming into the hospital to get an issue resolved, you know, a health issue resolved. You have to deal with all of that other stuff before you can even not just be you're, seen, yeah. but I mean, physically seen. The doctor's looking at you, but he's judging you before he treats you. And on this show, we're talking about, you know, the title of this show disability justice, disability justice and climate change. And there's this concept, eco-ableism. And Taylor, I wanted you to touch on this. You know, what are the concerns regarding accessibility for disabled people in the environmental social justice movements, right? And not only to those that are physically, that to physically participate or move within those spaces, but to also be at the proverbial table and to organize and to lead. And I know you were were leaning into that as well. Yeah, no. So let me just, let me just say, so whatever kind of proverbial table or whatever that happens to be, you have to have a way to get in the room to be at that table. Exactly. The architecture of that hypothetical building has to be accessible for that metaphor to work. People with disabilities have never been and will never be the problem. Ableism is the problem. And a lot of people don't even know what ableism is. And that's okay. It's not okay, but you know what I mean? I mean, that it's okay. I'm going to give the definition as I understand it. And then there's a responsibility, right? That begins then. That once you become aware of something that you were not, you have a responsibility. So it is the discrimination of and social prejudice against people with disabilities based on a belief that their abilities are, that your abilities are superior to theirs, okay? The way that this gets wrapped around environmentalism and environmental activism, therefore eco-ableism, is just as complicated as everything else that we've discussed. The problem is that when this happens, when this attempt to exclude occurs, it's not activism. That's not activism. It's something else. Because activism, at its, in its very essence, must be intersectional. It must always already be inclusive, right? And so... There, and that's there, one of the things, right, that disability intersects into every other into every other, into every other community. Right. So, yeah. And and so here's the other thing. Exactly. Juliet, like, okay. So, so I'll give one example, right? So the uh, single use plastics, which I understand where years and decades and decades of this type of use 
and what that has led to in terms of the environment. If you take a step back and you say, okay, if we look at feeding tubes, nasal cannulas, masks, IV tubes, syringes, some of the most common pieces of equipment that are used by disabled people every single day. When I started learning more and more every day from Juliet, from others, about accessibility, but also the way in which there was a divide, that there's some very bizarre divide between climate activists and disability advocates. There's a divide there, right? And it goes beyond the plastic straw, but but that is something that's very serious and, and must be spoken about. And there are, some of it is this, that, that we have to look at this as inherently intertwined. It isn't climate versus disability. It, you know, what we've spoken about before, it cannot be competition. It's got to be a collaboration. We have to stop and we have to look at the people that we're talking about and the ways in which our activism and the way that we're trying to save the planet, we have to include people with disabilities in discussions about sustainability. So true. We, ha- we, we, we have to. It's very shocking to me that this is even a conversation, like I said, because of the intersectionality. You can be born with a disability or you can become disabled later on in life. So that's why the population of, of the disabled community is so enlarged and they actually miss out on a more in a marketing aspect. They miss out on a huge, uh, this is a billion dollar industry of people that we're overlooking because they don't, they, they feel uncomfortable dealing with people that have a disability or lack the patience or understanding. And it, it's, it's just insane considering that Every community, the LGBTQ community, the BIPOC community, women, men. You know, and and it's really about learning from both sides and saying, we have to be in this conversation together. It it has to be inclusive on every every level of this, you know. And we're going to bring that conversation back after the break. And I want to talk to you, Julia, about, you know, connecting what is happening right now in our climate to also how that looks like within moments of crisis and climate crisis as we've spoken to before. And then also bring the conversation back to what can we do? What are what are the ways that we can fight for and demand disability justice? So we'll be right back with that conversation after the break. Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you are enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org. You can check out previous shows and guests, and you can also get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to The Intersection of Disability, Justice, and Climate with host Jessica Aldridge, myself, and our guest, Juliet Romeo, disability advocate and founder of Media Jewels Production and Slam Dance Unstoppable, and Taylor Miller, festival manager of Slam Dance Unstoppable and Slam Dance Miami. Julia, during times of crisis, such as major hurricanes like Katrina and Ida and fires and droughts and floods and even migration issues due to political conflicts, those with disabilities and the lack of accessibility have some of the greatest challenges to 
evacuation to adaptation and financial and structural needs. And, and many times they are the last to be considered during these moments of crisis. Can you expand upon this and, and why this is a social and environmental justice issue? Yeah, I remember maybe like two, three years ago, maybe I think it was 2017 when Hurricane Irma came and an entire it was a couple of them, some nursing homes and some homes that took care of the disabled was completely abandoned. They were like literally sitting in their wheelchairs and beds with water surrounding them. It was a huge news story here. I remember watching that and thinking, I cannot understand why this is even a story. Like, why are we recording this? Why aren't we just rescuing? What are we What are we doing right now? Like, yes, this is an issue. Let's we see it's an issue. It's, let's not make it an issue. Like, why are we watching this go on, right? That also boils down to, like, where people are allowed to live, the systemic racism and redlining of communities, even, like, food sources that certain communities have available to them. It's just really, really sickening to, to think about how rejected and dejected these communities are, right? Until they need something, you know. I don't know if this is news or not to anyone, but there's been stories going around for a while now that by 2030, 2035, the Miami coastline of South Beach will be gone. It will be underwater. And what are they doing? They're already pushing to buy out these desert communities where they have Black and Indigenous people living, and pushing them, I don't know where they want them to go, but they know because that is going to become the new coastline, that area. So it, it's just ridiculous that they know these things. They're still selling these condominiums and things on the coastline for top dollar, knowing that it's going to be underwater. So who are you selling these things to? Knowing that they just lost their money and it's literally sinking, right? This is like a nightmare game of monopoly. And it's it's ridiculous, and people, people are dying. People's lives are at risk. People's health is at risk. These places are infested with roaches, and that causes a lot of breathing issues. I don't understand how once they come in and gentrify, now all of a sudden these things are fixed, and you're telling me they couldn't have been resolved before. So it, it just, it's just like really disheartening. And I do feel that the way to for me, the way that I bring awareness to it as a filmmaker is the way I protest. As myself being disabled, there's just so much marching I can do, so much knocking on doors physically that I can do. However, my protest is in my is in my art, right? And I Absolutely. leave that for the yeah. people who are able-bodied to be to be that ally, to, to create allyship for us. That's what is is very necessary. This idea that we have to advocate for ourselves is the total opposite of what advocate even means. (laughs) No, you just advocate for others. So Yeah, um, it's it's like when people are like, it's so exclusive, it's for everyone. Yeah. You're like, wait, what? No, that's literally (laughs) that's not wait, what happened? So I just really I feel like that's the best way. I feel like what we need to do is really flesh out and highlight the so-called se- these so-called secrets that are happening. You know, like, so like by the time we know the story, 
all of the plans have already been done. You know, what, what's the gentrification has already happened? Everything is all, now we're learning about the coastline, but the gentrification has already happened, right? People are already being pushed out. We really need to shed a light on it beforehand because now they're like, what are you going to do? We already, we're, we're already here and we've yeah. already pushed them out. Yeah. And I, I think that it sort of speaks directly to what we were talking about earlier, right? With the silent and the non-visible and these environmental catastrophes, right? That are existing in areas of poverty and areas where, you know, there's at-risk youth and sort of these terms that we have created that become synonymous with certain areas of a city or certain areas of a town and the way in which the environment, the way in which as a character becomes something that is also sick, right? That there's more pollution in a certain part of town, right? In the poor neighborhood, right? Where, and then you look at the levels and pollution, the, the, mo- the most dangerous pollution, obviously, you know, the, the, the billowing smokestacks that, that you sometimes see, that, that's not great by any means. But as my wife will tell me, the, the worst kind of pollution is the pollution you can't see, right? That, that's, that's, that's the deadliest. And mm-hmm. so, Juliet, we've talked about that in terms of, you know, when you've told me about sort of your acute crises and moments of uh, when, when you've had to go to the hospital, I've done some research and, you know, part of it too, is you look at different areas in Georgia, you look at different areas in Florida, West Virginia, some of those, some of the statistics there are that, you know, air pollution directly affects sickle cell, right? And in certain cities, those acute cases have been linked to the area in which the person who's experiencing them, the area in which they live in that city. Mm -hmm. And so there's no mistake, right? This isn't just sort of a byproduct of a bunch of mysteries that no one can connect, right? It's, Mm -hmm. and so to your point, Jessica, justice is something that has to be almost not, not, not reframed, but we got to go out, just forget the frame. We got to go outside of that and we have to be present enough in our own lives to be willing to learn the different connotations that something means. So -hmm. when you're, you know, talking about justice and injustice and inclusivity and exclusivity, how is that affecting people that you love on a day to day basis? How is it affecting you? Mm -hmm. Right. So you go into a, you go into a building and you look around and you start asking questions like, my friend that's in a wheelchair, could he get through the door, right? Or on your street, is there a way for, for my friend, you know, is there a way for Juliet to travel somewhere? And would she have everything that she needs if something were to happen to her oxygen? And it leads to this base of looking at the climate crisis looking at people with visible and non-visible disabilities and saying, when we have a crisis, as major hurricanes, fires, droughts, floods, migration issues, right? 
disabled people are the worst affected people in an emergency. They're disproportionately a higher mortality rate and the least access to emergency support. So if you, if you go and you look at, okay, you know, let's say that, let's go back and look at Hurricane Katrina for a second. Half, I didn't realize this until I was doing some research recently. Half of the deaths from Hurricane Katrina were people over 75. And of those people over 75, 84% of them had disabilities. I didn't even know that. I didn't know it either. Right. And so that, that's, that's part of it though. Right. We have to admit that we don't know and we've got to learn. And then once we mm-hmm. learn, we have to have, you know, we have to be held accountable. And, and that's like, the thing, though, for you to talk, talk about that about Katrina. Katrina was uh, how many years ago now? Over 15 years, maybe. Yet we are still having the same problem. Here we are in 2017, like I just mentioned, during Hurricane Irma. Irma. That they're being stranded in, in, in the place that they were, they were left to be taken care of. When it comes to eco-justice and these organizations, they're trying to deal with the pollution, but they need to remember why. What's your why? Your why is the people. Your why is to have healthier access for everyone. You can grow up and play in a playground, but also so another child who does not you know, can who cannot, cannot play, play at a playground. At a playground, can also still thrive in the space that he can thrive. The, the ableism is even in the activism, and that's the problem. No, that that's it, right? So ableism is exclusive in nature, and so it reinforces this inaccurate myth that continues the systemic oppression of those who identify as disabled. And and that's not even to get to mention the tropes and the symbolism and, and all of the variations that, that are at play in the, let's not say representation, let's say the misrepresentation and media film and advertisements. But so is activism a little bit exclusive because there's these types of activists. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I still think you have an opportunity and thank you again, Jessica, for, you know, for, for having us on the show. And it's like, you get, you get to towards the end of a show and it's like, what can we do? Right. Well, yeah. what are some of the solutions? How do we, yeah. what, you know, I mean, so, so that you don't feel just so overwhelmed and here's what, listen, I don't have the answers, right. You know, I, I, but I have a couple suggestions and I, I've said it before, but I think if it can happen on a grassroots level and if just one person can hear this, and actually do it, right, is we have to include people with disabilities, visible and non-visible, in discussions about sustainability and climate. And literally including people with disabilities in that conversation. How? So how how can non-disabled people support and advocate for access and visibility for people with disabilities? Because a lot of people would say, well, I do, I, 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 I'm supportive and you know, we made sure that there was ADA, compl- uh, you know, access for this event, you know. Exactly. It can't be for show. It's mm-hmm. yeah, You know sorry, what I learned doing the first year of Unstoppable is that accessibility is for everyone. It ends up helping everyone. And so I think that sometimes the able-bodied community seems to believe that 
everything that that, a, that the disabled community needs is extra work, right? So let's say, for example, someone says, well, you know, we're going to do this event in this building and we need a ramp. Yes, we need that ramp for the wheelchairs, but it will also help you bring in equipment easier. Like, we have these these spaces where during, during the festival, everything was captioned. And uh, yeah. my, my husband was like, oh, I, I like this caption thing. And I like the audio description. I'm like, really? Why? He's like, because I kind of already see what's going to happen. Like, if I'm not paying attention, I didn't feel like I missed anything. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, people are acting like this is extra work. Yet no it one's bothered by it. Helps it helps everyone. So I feel yeah. like there's so many other spaces in yeah. different communities where disability access, accessibility works for it's everyone. A win, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. You are both filmmakers. Um, where do you focus your attention and, and what role does filmmaking play in your activism? I know that you've alluded to that already, but let's maybe dive into that a little bit more. Taylor, if you want to speak to that first. Oh, sure. Thank, thanks, Jess. Yeah, you know, I, I've always been drawn towards little sort of vignettes or, or moments, you know, even as a kid, when you're just walking around or as a teenager, you're going to be in New York City or be wherever of, of kind of locking my eyes on a moment that's happening that, that no one's really telling me about. No, no one's guiding me through that. Like I, I'm, I'm finding it and I'm trying to put the pieces together. And my having my camera, that, that helps me to understand the moment that's taking place and the affect behind it. Saying that, I will, I'll also say that being a filmmaker and being a documentarian, I've learned a lot in the last few years that um, some of the biggest moments that I've learned from it, I didn't, I didn't have my camera. It wasn't something that I was properly shooting, right? It wasn't something that was set up and it was, um, you know, where I was going to discuss with the subject and find it. It's when the, it's when the story veered off, and then the other story happened. It's a fine balance, but I think that the activism and the filmmaking, just like the people that are doing everything they can to continue to learn and to save the environment, and people that are living with visible and non-visible disabilities, it's not verse, right? It's intertwined. So it's the same on, on all of those things. I think that this radio show, right, it's an example of the types of conversations that we have to have to hold ourselves accountable. And that sometimes doing documentary work is this, it's asking if everyone's included and if they're not doing something about it, doing everything that you can in your power to fuse those instead of attempting to exclude. Thank you for that, Taylor and Juliet. Well, during the George Floyd protest, I really felt that I needed to be doing something. And so I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of filming my feelings. It wasn't even something that I was sharing, but just shooting my own emotions. I wasn't in the middle of COVID able to go out, you know, with my disability and really be in the thick of everything and really get to shoot the type of content that I wanted. Um, And even before that before the protest, I've always used my art to be able to fight back. I did a short narrative once, uh, which was a play on 
Black Lives Matter called I Deserve Better, just talking about the police brutality and what that looks like. And yet Black lives do matter, but we all deserve better was basically the point of the story. And so it's just the way that I write, the way that I see the world, I think has always been in protest. I think because I am a sickle cell warrior and I've been fighting for my right to live, to breathe, to be able to grow up as a a child. You know, I've been told, or my parents have been told their whole life that I wouldn't live to be a certain age. I feel like I've always been fighting some sort of injustice that was happening and that I've always been using my creative work to tell that story, to to fight back against what I feel I was being oppressed by, or I saw other people being oppressed by. And a lot of my story and my journey is about that. And so that's what I've done. And I've admired seeing other filmmakers and other people in different uh, aspects of their life do the same. So I recognize that being out in the trenches or marching and things like that are not the only way to protest and to fight back and get just and to really respect and acknowledge when you do see it. Because I think sometimes we don't see it that way. And so we think, well, this person is not doing anything for their community. But if you really look at what they're doing and what they're trying to say and how they're changing the, the dialogue that's happening, and that's, that's the type of filmmaker that I, I'm striving to be. Thank you, both of you. So where would people get more information? Would you have resources that you would recommend people to check out? And then also, you know, more information about Slam Dance Unstoppable and how to watch the films. Uh, Juliet? If you're looking for information on uh, finding more ways to be involved and learn more about disability, I would say go to respectability.org. That's respectandability.org. And they are an amazing organization that helps to, especially in entertainment and the arts, helps bring the disabled creatives together. And they also do disability sensitivity training. So everything that you are going to need to know and learn, you could could learn from them. They're amazing. And how do we get information on Unstoppable and see the films? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, slamdance.com go to slamdance.com. There are a lot of films are on the slam dance channel. There's also going to be, we're revving up what the team's calling season two of unstoppable. So mm-hmm. we're, we're taking submissions now. Submissions will be done over uh, around September 27th. And then we will go into deliberations and our next Our second year, our season two, will premiere in January of 2022. Right now, it's set for in-person in Park City, also online. But all of that has to do with where we are with COVID and the variants. And accessibility is the most important thing. So first and foremost... Slam Dance Unstoppable will Unstoppable be will always be online. always be online as well the Slam Dance Film Festival. Okay, yeah. so let's just be clear about that. Um, and always unstoppable, right, Julia? Always unstoppable. I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on. There's a really good blog. It's called The Beginner's Guide to Understanding Ecoableism. It's greencityliving.co.ca. And it's also a, a great place to like support disability organizations on that website. So again, it's a uh, green city living 
co.ca. And yeah, you know, stay, stay tuned for Slam Dance Unstoppable, Slam Dance Miami. You know, that that's coming uh, at the end of October and Slam Dance out in Joshua Tree, September 24th to 26th. You know, we got two, two unstoppable films that are out there in the lineup, My Layers, and then the other one that we mentioned before, which is How Much Am I Worth? Well, thank you both of you for being on the show today. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate you very much uh, for taking your time. I know that you are both on the East Coast and we record on the West Coast. So thank you. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Yes, same here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our guests today, Taylor Miller and Juliet Romeo. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been the intersection of disability, justice, and climate. Please connect with us on social media. You can find us at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. And if you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast, share those episodes, and get that knowledge and information out there. And also, help us continue our efforts by making a donation to the show at ecojusticeradio.org. You've been listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on kpfk.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Ike, producer and co-host Jessica Aldrich, co-host Carrie Kim, engineer Blake Lampkin, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.